Good morning, everybody. It's a beautiful Saturday morning here in my state. We're supposed to have a snowstorm and it's raining. It's pretty funny. <laughs> but anyways, I'm here with um, Audrey and Jimmy. And Audrey and I have unique but similar parallel experiences of church leadership really abandoning us as victims, not providing resources. Which brings me to why we have Pastor Jimmy here. Pastor Jimmy wrote a book called The Devil Inside. And I've read this book. It was like a breath of fresh air to hear from ministry and a leader and a person in a leadership position taking the exact opposite route of what my church did. So say hi to Pastor Jimmy, everybody. Hey, everybody. Would you like to talk about that, Jimmy? Yeah, uh, man, where do you want me to begin? There's so much to unpack. Well, you could always start with what made you different. Um. <laughs> so typically, for those viewers who are unaware, like in my case, so um, I wrote a letter to my ministry before I took off, and they claimed that she didn't name the abusers, which is a lie. And they did nothing. And when there was an investigation done and they arrested five people out of my immediate family members, after that is when the church actually put me in the bond and shunned me. And they kind of went a little bit further. They, they sent busloads of Amish people to testify for a perpetrator of child sexual assault and they got up, they paraded them up on the witness stand and cried and testified that he was a good Amish person. And that's a little bit hard to reconcile the complete abandonment of community. And I think Audrey's case was a little bit similar in a way. Yes, Audrey? Was it? Yeah. Yeah, in my case, in my case, yeah, in my case would have been a little bit different because I had I left my husband because he was cheating and into porn and a lot of stuff like that prior to my knowledge of what he had done to my children so they excommunicated me from that for that his father knew what he was doing um, his father was the bishop and his father chose not to do anything about it um, because their reputation was more important than anything and um, so when I finally couldn't do it anymore and told him to leave and get help then the, the church excommunicated me and abandoned me. Um, and then it was later, a couple years down the road, when I realized what had been done to my children, when I started to find out. And then it kind of went to a whole new level as far as just the, the abuse from yep. the, and the abandonment from the church and people breaking into my home. I mean, it got psycho crazy. Just stalking. Yeah. Yep. 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 I ended up actually uh, filing guards against his father for um, harassment. So that gives you a bit of an idea. I mean, that's just, that's just sad. Good for you. That it's a church sad. Leader, a church leader. Well, it's just sad that as a church leader and especially as a bishop and as a father-in-law and a grandfather that you have to go to that length because that's where the support and the protection should be coming from. It's just so twisted. Well, he's not just the church leader. He's a role model. People look up to him. People want to be like him. 
people follow his lead. So if the, if the leader of the church is acting that way, what do you expect the fold to do? You want to weigh in on that, Jimmy? Yeah. Well, I mean, all of this is baffling and my, you know, my, my first um, experience with churches um, blaming victims and not believing them and um, casting them out of the church and, you know, all that stuff, telling them they have to forgive their abuser and their abuser um, isn't required to do anything. And in fact, you know, and, you know, you wanted to talk about that a little bit later. So I don't, I don't want to delve deep into that now, but this whole notion that your abuser probably most likely won't even know that you're forgiving him, but you have to do it anyway. We require nothing of the abuser and everything of the victim who's already uh, suffered so tremendously at the hands, innocently at the hands mm -hmm. of somebody who purposefully wrecked their lives. Um, you know, and that is the definition of oppression. So we let the oppressors in the church, um, in your experiences and in most victims experiences, they let the abuser off scot-free and in fact, invite them back into the church and elevate them to leadership positions or back into their leadership positions that they once held. Um, they, they ship busloads of people to support them and to talk about what wonderful people they are while their victims are, are literally bleeding out spiritually and emotionally. And, and, and those same people, those same church leaders are pointing at the victims as they're bleeding out on the ground saying, you need to forgive and pick yourself up and, you know, dust yourself off and move on. It makes no sense. It, it makes no, it makes no sense from a, a common sense perspective. It makes no sense from an ethical perspective. It makes no sense from um, a moral perspective. And it makes no sense from a biblical perspective. Um, it's just, it, we have things so upside down and I can't comprehend. I've been doing this for 10 years um, since I reported my own father and I still don't get it. I, I can not follow the logic of church leaders that, that behave this way. It makes no sense. Can I just point out that in the conversation that like um, we were having on social media the other day, I kind of compared it to like first off the victims already in, in distress and mm -hmm. I compared it to a mm -hmm. psychological kick. Like if you see somebody bleeding out on the ground, mm -hmm. you're not going to just walk up and kick them. That's that's not human nature to do that. Right. But that's what they're doing in a sure. sense when they when they do that. Yeah. Well, I mean, my mom and I, we've, we've used this analogy before um, on our podcast and, and we said, imagine, imagine a trauma doctor, somebody who, um, or an ER doctor, right? Because they're supposed to be trained in, in all sorts of trauma. They're supposed to be able to expect anything because when you work in an emergency room, you're an emergency room doctor. Every person that comes in that door is having a critical emergency. Um, right. That's what they're trained to do. Now imagine an ambulance or a helicopter brings a trauma victim to that ER and the doctor immediately starts uh, looking at the patient and is like, what are you doing here? Uh, this is your fault. Right. And why, why are you coming to me? Mm -hmm. um, why are you telling me this? Why are you telling me that, that somebody injured you? Why are you telling me that you're hurt? Um, you need to just move on. You need to forgive the person who did this to you and just say it's a stab victim. Um, mm -hmm. You need to forgive that person and just move on, um, or you you don't belong here. You're not welcome here. Um, churches 
we're always meant to be a hospital for broken people. And we've reversed that and we've welcomed uh, the oppressors and the abusers in and we give them anonymity. Like I see churches give them anonymity. I see churches give them a platform. I see churches give them pulpits um, to be able to preach with the Bible. Um, I see churches hand them victims and they turn a blind eye to it while they're pointing and shouting down the victims saying, what are you doing here? Um, you need to get out. It makes no sense. I mean, it makes no sense whatsoever. So, you know, you asked what makes me different. Um, when my sister came to me, um, she was 21 years old. She she was just starting to have memories. She had no memories of her abuse. Um, mm -hmm. And then they started, they started slowly coming back. And she saw my dad interacting with, um, with these minor children uh, that he was babysitting <clears throat> from another church here in town. My sister saw his interactions with these kids, and that's what started triggering some of her memories. They started coming back. That's absolutely horrifying. Yeah. I can tell you that having those flashbacks as a victim is not okay. It, it's, it's, it's horrifying. Sure. But, you know, good for your sister for finding her voice. Absolutely. And then I, yeah. I want to point something else out. It's like you believed her. Mm -hmm. Immediately. You believed her. Yeah. How many church leaders think and and say that, um, like, for example, let's just talk about I was working on a project and I reach out to the, um, what is it called, the Amish Restoration Committee in, in Ohio. And, and I spoke to a man named Jake Mast, and he said that this is like 50% of it is all lies. Like the victims are making this stuff up. And, and I'm just horrified that, that he has any kind of role in interacting with victims because he's unsafe. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, let me speak to that a little bit. I mean, first of all, my sister came in. Um, she was visibly shaken. Um, you know, she was crying. She put her, she put her head in her arm and just started sobbing. Um, I, I, again, going back to the hospital, I can't imagine any doctor though. I'm sure they exist. Um, but I, I can't imagine any normal trained doctor seeing somebody come into the ER who's, who's sobbing, crying, saying that they're injured and saying, well, maybe there was a misunderstanding somewhere. Maybe, well, maybe you're not really, maybe you're remembering wrong. Um, I can't imagine any, any doctor doing that. Go ahead, Mary. Usually doctors, you know, they're generally, there's some unethical doctors out there as mm -hmm. well. Sure. But in the same token, like they take a Hippocratic oath where do no harm, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, do, do you think that church leaders should be doing no harm? Should they, should they have a motto of that or something? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I think there should be some sort of formal um, oath that they take. And I mean, honestly, I think it should be illegal for church leaders like doctors. You know, it's yeah. not that it's unethical for a doctor to break the Hippocratic oath. It's illegal for them to do so. Yep. And they're um, held accountable. Well, and I think that's right. Church leaders need to. I think church leaders need to, it needs to be a requirement that they're, they're trained in trauma. They need to be trauma informed. I mean, go into yeah. any school. Every teacher is required to be trauma informed, to be trained. Like that should just be a baseline requirement. We shouldn't even bat an eye. Like, I mean, that's yeah. like go, like you said, going into the ER and then the doctor looking at you go, oh, that's not blood, you know, right. when you're bleeding yeah. out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
I agree with that. Yeah. I mean, I do too. So, you know, it, it it's when my sister came in, um, I mean, I was, I was two years into ministry and, and for those people who are here, who, who don't know, or haven't read the book or don't know who I am. Like I was incredibly close to my dad. I'm number six of 11 kids. I'm right in the middle, five older, five younger. Um, I went into ministry because my dad was in ministry because we were best friends. We were really close. We had never suspected abuse ever. Um, so it's not like there are all these glaring, you know, red flags. And we are like, you know, what a weirdo, what a creep. Like it was the exact opposite. Um, we loved and adored him and everything about our childhood seemed and felt normal. Um, so it's not like I had all these weird gut feelings to go on. And I was like, well, yes, of course he's an abuser. I didn't have any of that. So, uh, when this, when this was presented to me by my sister, uh, and she didn't give me, um, she didn't give me very many details either. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, it was an email exchange that she had handed me, um, very little details. And immediately I was like, oh my goodness. Like I said, first of all, um, I told Alex, I said, I believe you. And I said, um, you know, uh, like, I have no idea what this is going to look like moving forward for our family, for you, um, for my job, but none of that matters. And I told her, I said, what matters is it stops now. Yes. And I said, I don't, you know, I don't know what that's going to look like, but I can promise you, um, I will single-handedly help stop him from abusing kids. Um, and that was on a Friday, Monday morning, my mom and I were in the local police department reporting them. Um, so it, 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 there were no other options that we entertained. There wasn't like, well, let's, let's gather some, some church folk together and let's try to sort this out. And let's see if, let's see if these are credible allegations. There was none of that. You, so when you, when you say like, there was no, like, let's gather, like, first off, I want to point out like a glaring discrepancy because a lot of times, you know, there's a lot of, um, well, he's such a good person. Mm -hmm. He's such a fine upstanding mm -hmm. church member. And as yeah. you just said, your father was your best friend. Yeah, hands How down. do you reconcile that? How do you not feel guilty? Do you feel guilty about mm -hmm. that? Not knowing, not seeing and being inadvertently, do you feel like you were a pawn? Uh, I, I did it for, I felt guilty at first, um, because it, in fact, it, it's what really haunted me. And I talk about that in the book, like it, it haunted me that we all missed it, that all of these kids were abused in, in our church, in our home, in our community. He abused minor children, prepubescent children for over 40 years of his life. Jesus and none of us ever saw it. So, um, at first, like I was just racked with guilt and I was like, how could we be so stupid? How could we miss this? Um, but that guilt turned into, it turned into anger and, and righteous anger. And I was like, you know, that's when I talked about having this question. I, you know, I kept crying out to God, where were you when he was raping all these little kids? Where were you? Um, and the answer that I got back and it wasn't like a whisper, or anything like that. Uh, like I don't hear voices. Um, but I think it was just this internal voice where, um, where I heard God say back to me, where were my people? And that, that question forever changed the course of my life because, because I said, I can't, <clears throat> I can't be in this unique position of somebody who reported my own dad, um, who didn't know 
for my entire life that he was an abuser um, who had uh, abused, this guy had abused biological family members of mine. Um, I've, I have two degrees. Um, I can't be in this unique position and not obsessively research what it is about us that, that made us miss it so that we can help equip other people uh, to spot people like my father. So, you know, I, I turned that, I turned that, that righteous thing. One of my favorite parts. Yeah. 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 I mean, uh, uh, I, I could That was not one of my sleep. favorite parts of your book was where you went into that shift and talked about yes. that. Yeah. It was really enlightening and it was helpful. It's also like, have you ever heard the saying that God helps those who help themselves? Yeah. That was something that basically helped me get out. Yeah. Well, I want to say, you know, uh, abusers, and this was my first, um, this was my first experience with this because it was about a three week period from the time I reported my dad until he was, uh, he was arrested. It was about three weeks. And during that three weeks, um, he told me he was going to, he was going to keep coming to church. Like didn't ask, didn't, um, didn't hint he, that he was going to do it. He explicitly told me, um, you know, I may as well just keep coming to church because at this point people don't know. Um, are you kidding me? No, oh no. And, and that was my first experience at how ballsy these people are that they just don't care. He had victims, young victims in my church, and he was going to plop his butt down in the seat knowing that he was about to get arrested. And so I told him, I was like, you come anywhere close to that door. I will physically remove you. And I said, I'll, I'll beat the living crap out of you. And then I'll call the cops and I'll, and I'll have you arrested for trespassing. I was like, you are not welcome inside of this church building, period. So. so yeah, that that's a really strong stance to take, like an absolute mm -hmm. no. I'm a cut off your supply of victims. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is good on you for doing that. And that's and, and shouldn't that be the only response? That should be the only right? response, but sadly, it's not. That's it not the be, response. Yeah. That yeah. literally should be the only response. If you have victims going to their ministry, their church leadership, whoever it is, and talking about these things, it shouldn't be this baloney of like, oh, she's just, and, and in our culture, we have our own language in my culture um, mm -hmm. as Amish. Like, so we speak Pennsylvania Dutch, so they would label us as naffy. And it, and it, and it kind of is like a derogatory term. Mm -hmm. And, and it's like, oh, well, she's just unforgiving. Mm -hmm. um, just basically, like, there's everything and anything. Like, oh, my God, your dress was half an inch too short, so you must have enticed somebody to rape you. I've sat in churches, and I've listened to victims, minor victims, confess that they sinned because they enticed their perpetrator to, to rape them. And I'm like, no, you're no. literally a minor and and your perpetrator is like 26 years old. I don't right. care if you were 16, right. 17, 15, 14, 13, 12. You are a child and right. you do not have the ability to make, give consent. That's yeah. the law. Absolutely. So why are these church leaders think? Say what, Audrey? I can't hear you, Audrey. 
we can't hear you. Um, but my question is, why are these church leaders sitting there? Still can't hear you. No sound from you, Audrey. You want to try leaving and coming back? Mm-mm, nothing. But That's my question, yeah, that is a bummer. She'll come back. Um, my question is, is why are these church leaders saying stuff like, in my case, um, it's actually written in an article. My bishop is quoted as saying that, well, why can't I just handle this within the church? So mm -hmm. my question is, do you think that these church leaders are given resources and tools and have the ability and knowledge to actively and appropriately handle child sexual assault or any kind of sexual assault? I think it's really complicated because I think even if we give them the resources to be able to walk a church through um, step by step um, through abuse and it's, it, you know, it's, um, it's heavy, it's, it's muddy. Um, there's a lot of gray. Uh, not everything is black and white when you're dealing with this stuff. Um, no. It's, it's, um, it's complicated. It's, um, uh, there are so many different lines between, um, We'll see if you we can hear you. Can you hear me now? Yes. Yes. Okay. Wonderful. What happened there? Thank you. Yeah. Somebody had to have technological issues. So yeah, it. I'll finish my thought, and then I want to I want to hear what Audrey was trying to say. Yes. Um, so you know, I, I I was saying Audrey, even even if churches had the proper tools, the vast majority of them wouldn't wouldn't take advantage of that, and I I think part of that is because um, it begins with really, really awful, bad, 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 bad theology. Um, and I always say bad theology leads to bad practices. So um, I think given our culture, even in the plain community, um, we've bought into this idea of this instant transformation. Um, and I think that's because of our Western culture where um, virtually everything is, is instant. Um, everything is really quick. It's fast paced. And so, you know, you'll see things like these cardboard testimonies where people on one side of the card, I was addicted, then they flip it over. Now I'm free. And churches parade those people across the stage one after the other. And so what, what people in the audience see are, oh my goodness, look, look how good God is. There's this instant transformation. They went from broken to fixed, um, just like that. Um, and, and we're so programmed to think this way. And so in my mind, as I see these cardboard testimonies, the first thing that comes to my mind is what do, what do abuse survivors put on their card? You know, still struggling. Um, I have Church. chronic anxiety, panic attacks, eating disorders. Um, I've Can't been abandoned. Sleep for more. Can't sleep for more than two hours at a time around certain dates. Right. Nightmares. That's right. So church leaders... There's nothing clean and pretty that fits on survivors on the back of their card. So for them, um, the churches don't want to parade them across the stage. They want to see this transformation. And so the best way to get that transformation is to, first of all, deny the the level of abuse that happened. Um, but secondly, to tell the survivors, hurry the heck up and heal. For You need to forgive. You need to move on. You, come on. It's been... What? It's been two weeks since you first told us about this and you're still crying and you're still broken. Come on, like just have more faith, um, forgive more and and you'll be made well. People don't like sitting in the discomfort 
um, that is the lives of survivors of abuse. They don't like to sit there because there's not this resolution. It's it's this slow, painful progress towards healing. And church leaders, quite frankly, don't have the patience for it. And I think that's a big part of why they're like, hurry up, come on. Um, maybe you're inflating this a little bit. I mean, it's been six years now and you're still talking about this. Well, um, then do you think that church leaders understand that when... Um, you know, so in, in childhood, like your brain's still developing and being sexually assaulted as a child is practically like a physical injury to your brain mm -hmm. and it reprograms and rewires your brain. Absolutely. And so like, it could be the littlest thing. Like it can be, I, I had somebody who went to work and they came home early and I didn't know they were coming home early and I had a complete panic attack. Sure. 16 years later. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, yep. Yeah. Do do they understand that it's a physical injury to the brain? No, I don't. I don't think even a lot of psychologists recognize that. Mm -hmm. And I heard um, Christine Parker, who's a good friend of mine. Um, she she has Porch Swing Ministries. I serve on the board at Porch Swing Ministries. Um, she we interviewed her. My mom and I interviewed her for a podcast, and she talked about the brain as the most important organ in your body. And she said, think about any other organ in your body. Um, if you have chest pains, what do they do? You go to the hospital, they take you in immediately. Like you get bypassed past every other patient immediately. And they begin x-rays and, and um, all kinds of scans. And they don't go in there blindly. And they're just like, oh, we're going to, we're going to, Mm -hmm. Drop a little bit of this kind of medication and, you know, mixing all these potions up and they're like, let's try this. And if you get, you know, if you have a heart attack, come back and see us. Right. But we do that with the brain. Um, people go in so blindly, including, including um, therapists. And they're like, well, let's try this and see how that works. Um, mm -hmm. They don't take any scans of the brain. And you're exactly right. Like trauma, especially when you're young, we have brain scans that show it. Mm -hmm. It forever changes the brain. Mm -hmm. It rewires the brain. And we have these people who go in with these powerful, powerful medications. And they're like, well, if you get, if one of the side effects is, you know, you might be suicidal. So if you're suicidal, call this phone number. Nobody in their wrongful mind, medicated mind is going to have the, have the self-awareness to be like, oh, I'm going to call the 800 number, mm -hmm. right? It, it doesn't work that way. So the most important organ in the brain is the one that we we just fly completely blind. And we're just like, let's just wing this and see what happens. It's insanity. And we wonder why there's a mental health crisis um, in our in our nation. Audrey, I want to give you the floor because I know you you were trying to talk when your mic went out and I don't want to I don't want to take up your time. Go for it. Well, there's a couple things that now that the conversation continued, but what I was going back to the original thought is what are your thoughts on the fact that the church doesn't seem to see sexual abuse as a crime? Again, I don't, I, I, I think, again, I think it goes back to bad theology. I think there's this notion that Matthew 18 is like this fix all passage where Jesus is talking about mercy and he's talking about if, if your brother sins against you, you go back and you forgive him seven, seven times, seven times or 70 times, seven times, whichever translation you're reading. Um, and it, it's this idea that 
um, uh, people call it um, sin, sin leveling. Oh, a sin is a sin is a sin. There's no sin that's greater than the other. Bull crap. What about the people? What would you say to the people that tell victims that if you don't forgive your abuser, then your sin is greater than his? Yeah, I think it's nonsense, and I think there's no biblical foundation for that. Um, Jesus told his disciples, um, if you forgive, they will be forgiven in heaven. If you don't forgive, they won't be forgiven. Um, we don't talk about unforgiveness in the Bible, which is a very biblical mm -hmm. concept. Um, we don't talk about conditional forgiveness. Um, it's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I'll shift a little bit to forgiveness, but uh, you and I talked about it the other day. You know, I, I said people understand it. They understand this idea of forgiveness with physical property, uh, but not with children, not with people's souls. So physical property, somebody, you know, the example I gave was somebody comes onto your property intentionally with their pickup truck. They wrap a chain around your mailbox. They rip it out of the, out of the concrete post that it's in. Um, then they go into your yard. They go into your $30,000 flower bed and they just start doing donuts. They just start intentionally wrecking your yard. Um, mm -hmm. The owner sees it, gets a license plate number, calls the insurance company, and the insurance company is like, I realize that you're upset right now, um, you know, and I guess that's justified that you would be, be upset about this. But, man, you're just like, you're fuming mad uh, for your own health, for your own sanity. You just need to forgive this guy his debt and, and move on, <laughs> right? Like, in no sane world does that make that's, sense. That's, but, that's insane. <laughs> but, right? Like, forgiveness... Forgiveness is not for the benefit of the person who was wronged. It's just not biblically. It's not for the benefit of the person who was wronged. It's for the benefit of the person who did the wrong to be released of that debt when and only when they begin to try to make reparations for that. They begin to repay that, knowing full well that they'll never be able to, to fully restore um, or repay the debt that they racked up. Um well, if that was your neighbor or your brother or your 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 father or your pastor, like mm -hmm. you know, would it ever re would you ever be able to trust that person the same way? Would you ever would it ever restore no. that relationship to the full context of what that relationship was prior to that incident? Probably not. But if the person really genuinely crawled on their hands and knees, and <laughs> And went in your flower bed and started planting flowers back and volunteered their time for the next couple years, right. you know, and started showing it, that they were might... trying to make repayment for the debt that they incurred. At some point, you could say, you know what, I'm going to forgive you your debt. I'm not going to forget that right. you did this, um, but I'm going to forgive your debt because at some point I need to realize you're never going to be able to repay this. But right. we do the exact opposite. You know, when it comes to abuse, we're like, your abuser won't even, they won't even know that you're forgiving them. Then what's the point? You know, and, it, and um, even the Bible verses that talk about forgiving as the Lord forgives. Can you imagine God saying, you know, for my own healing, for my own inner peace, for my own peace of mind, I'm just going to forgive everybody on planet earth, no matter what they've done, no matter what they're doing right now. And they won't even know that I'm forgiving them. I'm just going to save them all. 
It makes no sense. Sounds a little illogical. We have right. a comment from one of our viewers that says a Jehovah's Witness to ask me how I can say rape is a graver sin than stealing margarine. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Oh, where do we begin? I, you know? and, <laughs> I mean, I mean, again, go back, go outside of our theology, go outside of our bad theology. Um, and and let's think about this in in secular terms. Let's say, okay, I'm a lead foot. A true confession here. Um, I I have over a million miles, and I have probably over 15 speeding tickets in my life. Like I just love I love to get her done. I have um, no comment. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you know I I've been pulled over for speeding. Um, I've been fined. I've paid my fines in full, every one of them, and I still have my license. I still drive. I still um, I haven't had a take, you know, haven't had a ticket in over ten years. Um, Get better. I've gotten smarter. I haven't gotten slower. <laughs> <laughs> While we're being truthful here, but but okay, so a, a police officer writes me a ticket and says, "Can you do me a favor? Just slow down." Sure, officer. Um, now imagine that a group of people, a group of, of children are selling lemonade on a sidewalk. And I intentionally drive my car up on the sidewalk just for the heck of it, just because I don't care about human life. And I mow those children over at their lemonade stand and murder every one of them in cold blood. And then I drive off. I keep going. They're going to catch you and they're going to imprison you right? for the rest of your life. If why? you're lucky, you'll escape the death okay. penalty. Because okay. why? why? Because you took the life of, of however many children and it's not okay. It's a grave crime. It's a crime. Is a crime. 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 Breaking a, the speed limit. But right? that, that is a much higher. Is a that crime. is a fel No, that, that's, that's right? murder. That's, that's, isn't that a felony? Right. So, my so question the speed is, limit is is not a felony, and so the law has classified crimes as graver than others. Right. So my question is, would a Jehovah's Witness recognize that speeding is not in the same category as mowing over, over a group of young children purposefully at a lemonade stand? You're right, they would. A Jehovah's every Jehovah's Witness, if they're sane, would say, "Well, of course." Somebody who does that should go to jail for the rest of their life versus somebody should pay a fine for this. Well, why? I thought that a crime is a crime is a crime. Well, turns out uh, crimes are weighted differently and so are sins and so are the consequences for those sins. And then you get sins that, that are both a sin and a crime. Um, and as it turns out, sex abuse of a minor child is a felony in all 50 states in the United States of America. It's a felony in all 50 states. And aren't, aren't people in ministry positions required to be mandated reporters? In most states. It varies by state to state, but um, in, in almost all 50 states, um, clergy and you know other church, however you church define Church leadership, leadership, whatever they, right. yeah. They are whether it's the rabbi order. or the bishop right. or the deacon yeah. or whatever it is, church leadership in most states, not all of them, are required to report it. Yeah, 
So if they're required well, by I law to report it, why do they not report it? Uh, there was a study that was done back, I think, in the late 90s, early 2000s, and I can't remember which study it is now, but it showed that um, among school teachers, who all of them are mandated reporters in all 50 states, interesting, mm -hmm. um, that among those mandated reporters, that it was something like, um, I think it was 22% of school teachers reported when there were credible um, very specific allegations of abuse against a minor child who was one of their students, a student in their care, 22%. Um, I think those numbers probably plummet a lot more when you get into the religious community because of our bad theology. But, you know, as somebody who lived under the same roof as an abuser, I think the biggest component is, um, you know, again, this bad theology, um, it's this idea of tipping the scales for people, but they couldn't have done this, right? This is what it looks like. They couldn't have done this because I know them. Mm -hmm. I, you know, mm -hmm. I, I've had people tell me I've golfed with this man for the last 30 years of my life. And I say, so what? So you swung, you swung a stick at a ball um, and chased it around for 18 holes. Big deal. What does that tell me about the facts that are sitting in front of your face? What does that tell me about this child who's bleeding out, who's talking about being forced into, you know, oral sex and all these different things? What does, what does golf tell me about that? But they were such a good person. They, they visited people in the hospital. They, they gave up their money. So what? Again, what does that tell me about the facts that are sitting in front of my face? And that's, it's this idea of tipping the scales for people and not beginning with equal scales. So, so, you know, because we're buddies with somebody or because they're a family member, we go into this radical denial because we can't wrap our minds around the fact that the person we think we know could also be capable of these really serious crimes. Have you ever been able to reconcile that, that this was this like wonderful parent to you, but also like, have you thought about part of it was, is he was using you and mm -hmm. your siblings to enable him and give him a good cover to continue to hurt people, hurt children. Yeah. I mean, it's, I have to, to a degree, probably not a hundred percent, but, um, but it took a while, you know, because I said it would, this would have been so much easier if my dad was just a lousy father, if, if he was abusive, verbally abusive, physically abusive, if he was just a lousy excuse for a human being, then I'd be like, of course he's a sexual predator. Uh, why wouldn't he be? But that wasn't my experience. My experience was, you know, he stood at he stood at the pulpit for 27 years and preached and did really well and did all these good works and visited people in the hospital always. Any ball game that any of my siblings ever had, I didn't play sports. Um, I was the oddball. But you know, any of the sports that my siblings ever played, he was there. He would he would make the time to be there. Um, so trying to trying to wrap my mind around that those two worlds um and kind of a third world because um because i still visited him uh when he went to jail then uh, even into prison and we still communicate and for the first year that he was in jail he i mean he would look me in the eyes through the glass on the phone and he would say jimmy i swear to god that I never did anything. He said, you need to trust me. You need to know that I never did anything more than like light petting kind of stuff. 
there was he would look at me in the eyes there oh was my never, god oh yeah there was <laughs> never any penetration and did you know that was a lie um i suspected really strongly that it, that it wasn't a lie so so i um i dug into some records um that he still doesn't know that i dug into and uh these records show that every single one of the 23 victims that he confessed to there was full penetration I mean, he flat out lied to my face. How do you feel by, about that betrayal? Um, that it makes sense now. Mm -hmm. uh, because that's who he is. And that's why I went, in the book, right? I talk about uh, this language of wolves. When Jesus talks about people being ravenous wolves, people who come into the sheep pen who masquerade as sheep, and Jesus's own words in Matthew 7 are ravenous. These are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruit. He's not describing what they do. He's describing who they are. And we, we confuse those two and we're like, well, if this is what they're doing, if they're doing wolf-like things, then we need to pray more for them. We need to give them community. We need to have more Bible studies with them. Jesus never, him and his disciples never, never suggested anything other than when you recognize somebody's a wolf, the only thing you do is you avoid them, you cast them out, you shelter innocent people from these people. Well, why is that? Because it's who they are. It's not what they do. He's describing who they are. So yeah, for me, I mean, when my dad looks me in the eyes and lies to me uh, and also looked me in the eyes and said, you know, I want you to know that so-and-so um, I was so close to victimizing this person, but I didn't do it. You know, there were times where I was able to, to, to restrain myself and I didn't victimize the person in my mind. I was like, that was one of his most severe victims. I would find out later that I was right. Um, well, why is that? Because I know how wolves think it's who they are. And I really, I really, I really Say appreciated what? that part. I really appreciated that part of the book because okay, this kind of ties in with the culture we come out of in a different way. Um, so okay, so like with my ex-husband, you know, he would tell me those things about oh well, he almost cheated with this person, but he didn't, and he almost did this, but he didn't. Mm -hmm. And with over the years, I learned that those were his worst victims. Yeah, and they live in such an alternate reality, and they're incredible liars. They're incredible liars and they fool not only their victims but everyone around them and in the churches that i came out of i heard it over the pulpit over and over again how about how we're supposed to study the real thing not the counterfeit and i i really liked in your book where you talked about how we need to study the language of wolves because i mm -hmm. feel like we've enabled abusers for so long because instead of focusing on them and focusing on their behavior and what makes them tick and what allows them to operate undercover we instead are focusing over here on the unicorns and rainbows and we're missing it and they're operating mm -hmm. right underneath our noses doing incredible damage and and we're just looking the other way we're living over here in, yeah. in la la land thinking about heaven that's not reality we don't live in heaven that's we right. live in a real world full of yeah. And yeah, we need exactly to know right. their behavior so that we can find them and get rid of them. Yeah. 
and not only that, but like, so two things, I have two things to tie, uh, to, to say. Um, so when, like every time I told my mother, you know, she didn't have resources, my egg donor, um, she died being no contact with me. Um, it, it's almost like some churches treat the victims as wolves. That's yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Kind of yeah. like, oh, yeah. yeah. And, and oh, yeah. secondly, like they, like they, not only do they treat them as wolves, they label them as Jezebels, drug addicts, you know, you name it. Mm -hmm. We're, we're all kinds of everything else under the sun. It can't possibly be that this is what happened and this is the after effects of the trauma. Yeah. And then the other thing is, is I've always said this is in my Amish community, you know exactly what they want you to know about them. They mm -hmm. are capable of such massive lies. Like, you know, we were taught to fear the police, to fear law enforcement, to fear all outside people, all Englishers, because, you know, we shouldn't do this. We shouldn't um, tell them anything. Like the church has like special like brainwashing sessions, I call them, mm -hmm. when you join the church to like tell you what a grave sin it is to tell church business to outsiders because part of their allure and part of what enables them to continue this is because outsiders don't know and don't believe us mm -hmm. when we talk about these things. Yeah. Because you, you tell somebody, so you meet somebody and you say to them like, well, generally this comes out with pop culture because I'm pretty pop culture illiterate. And, and when people make a reference to pop culture, I'm just like, look, I was Amish. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and, and then they pop off with this whole like, well, you know, this movie and is it like Witness and is it like this? And oh, you must have left during your Rumspringa. Here's the thing. All of those things are inaccurate. Yeah. I mean, like yeah. one of my friends called me and was just dying laughing because she started trying to watch this one show and they were trying to make an Amish pie crust. And she's like, they put freaking yeast in the pie crust. And I'm just like, they can't even get a pie crust right. Why would people believe this? You don't put yeast in a pie crust. <laughs> Are you serious? Oh like God. what kind of, and then the other thing that people say is, but they make this great furniture and you learned how to do all this stuff. You know how to bake and cook and sew and you just got to take the good stuff and leave the bad stuff behind you. Mm -hmm. But my people are in crisis. How many Amish children are living under the roofs of their predators and, and going through what I went through? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. I mean, and, and I can, uh, I mean, I can say as somebody who, um, who is not Amish, but grew up working with lots of Amish, um, I live in Somerset County. I mean, we are surrounded by Amish. I grew up working on a farm. I worked with a lot of different Amish people. And my perspective, of course, I was I was young, but my perspective was these are some of the nicest people on the face of the planet. And kind of the same thing. Like, look how look how crafty they are. Look at um, look at how good they are at using these resources. They have very little to work with and they make these incredible, um, incredible things. They're they're really efficient. Um, and that's kind of what, what went through my mind. And it was never on my radar. Um, of course, it wasn't on my radar outside of the Amish community that there's a, a strong possibility that there could be really severe abuse going on. Did you know um, that when I reported, there were there were three predators in Pennsylvania that were never prosecuted because hmm. 
we can't, it would be he said, she said, and they sat on it for 10 years. And by the way, wow. I've visited Somerset County. I have relatives in Somerset County. Oh, yeah? And I lived in Lawrence County. Okay. That was one of my wow. communities. Yeah. yeah. Um, but no, like it's it's like this whole thing, like the state of Pennsylvania in 2004 declined to, quote, press charges because it, what would it do to our tourism? Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, yeah. you're mm-hmm. you're literally enabling these people to walk free. These people mm-hmm. still walk free. This was an yeah. 18-year-old. One of them was an 18-year-old who was um, sexually assaulting with full penetration a child between the ages of five and nine. Hmm. Are you serious? Wow. You're going to allow this to continue? So that's yeah. part of so the that crisis tells me that, that we there's have. There's a lot of change that needs to happen. Yeah, there's a lot of change that needs to happen. Just a lot of education, just out in the so-called real world. I mean, look at look at our our judges, and I, you know, even in our own case, you know, the lack of knowledge and the lack of education. And so, my question is, like, I could ask all day long, why, why, why? But for me, it's been more of a, Okay, so what can we do? Do we need yeah, to educate? Right. What and if we do, then how do we educate? Like how because we live in a world that has I mean, just take my own children for example. I mean, they they labeled me as, you know, making this up, putting this in my kids' heads. If you can look at my children who've whose bodies are covered in scars from cutting themselves, who've attempted to kill mm-hmm. themselves for years, the, all this trauma and then just write it off as oh, well they're just rebellious or they're just this, then you're severely undereducated. If you don't understand the the yeah. trauma, what trauma does to the brain, then you're severely undereducated. Yep. And so something yeah. somewhere that needs to change. And so my question is, how do we go about that? Not just in the church, but also the, 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 the first place that happens. The, the, the American culture needs to be educated. So part of my efforts are to raise awareness by like talking about these things um, because people don't believe it. Or they believe that I've I've heard this one too a lot of times is that well it's just your case is just an isolated case that doesn't really happen in Amish mm-hmm. communities. Never mind the fact that in the 17 years since I've gotten out, Audrey, I have legitimately not talked to a single ex-Amish person who has told me their story, who has not been or had or been was aware of the child sexual assault crimes that are committed in the Amish churches. Mm-hmm. The stories that I have heard just break my heart. And yeah, and there, I mean, there's every day. Yeah, yes. I mean, there's 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 research that shows um, the more conservative the and fundamentalist um, the the communities are. Uh, you know, uh, patriarchal, uh, all the men are leaders, the women, you know, which uh, I'm in a similar heritage um, in the churches of Christ. It's very, very patriarchal. Um, women, are, you know, they're only allowed to teach Bible classes until the kids are uh, hit puberty. And then all of a sudden they're not allowed to teach. They're not allowed to teach boys. They can continue to teach girls, but not boys. And that's about the extent of what they're permitted to do in a lot of the conservative churches and abuse is rampant in the churches of Christ. I could, I could name dozens of churches off the top of my head that, that I've been made aware of um, that they have known abusers and, and same thing. Like 
victims are told, um, you need to keep this quiet, you need to forgive, you need to move on. Um, they embrace the abuser, they love on them, they put them up at the pulpit, let them preach, let them teach. Um, and I think those conservative communities, not that it's not a liberal problem too, um, but this this culture of silencing that routinely silences women and children and tells them that you're, you're not really valuable. Um, God wants you to shut your mouth. Why? You know, and if you question it, why? Because the Bible says so. Like nobody can ever offer a really logical explanation for this oppression of women and children and the silencing of them. And that continues through the abuse. So when people disclose, mm -hmm. it makes sense that in a culture like that, of course, they're going to say, you need to shut your mouth and don't tell anybody about this uh, because that's what they're, that's what they've been programmed to do in those communities. And this culture just lends itself to horrific kinds of abuse, spiritual abuse, physical can I, abuse. Can I um, expand on what happens when they tell them to shut them, shut, shut up basically. Sure. So, yeah, yeah. So like my egg donor, for those who are unaware um, one of the things that she told me one of the times that I told her is like, well, you didn't pray hard enough and, you know, mm -hmm. you, you don't have enough faith and that's why. And it's like, I'm literally legitimately laying in my bed, curled up in a ball, wrapped in my blanket, just sobbing. Why, why won't you help me? Like, this doesn't need to happen. And it just got worse. Like, I, I mean, there were times I spent like six hours of the day, like trying to get away from a perpetrator my entire body is covered in scars and it's not scars from me self-harming it's scars from the abuse mm -hmm. and and so what happens when they do that is that the abuse gets worse and the perpetrators get better at threatening their victims mm -hmm. and they get better at manipulating these children to silence yeah and the question and they again get better the question, at manipulating the people around them yep yeah so again, you know, the question is why? Um, it's because they're wolves. And and again, the Bible is not describing behavior. It's describing who they are inherently, like part of their DNA, part of their makeup. That's who they are. And the Bible never even hints that these people change. It's just the opposite. Uh, it, um, Paul says in um, uh, 2 Timothy 3, verse 13, is one of my favorite passages. He says, while evil people and imposters go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. It's a self-deception that they think they think that they're the godliest people on the face of the planet. Talk to any victim of any kind of abuse in any religious community anywhere. Mm -hmm. And they'll all say the same thing. These guys, they they will tout themselves and the community will tout them as the most righteous, the most smart, the most brilliant. They just know their Bible so well. They're the pillar of the community on and on and on and on and on. Um, so there's this self-deception where these guys think that, that they and God are inseparable. And I think part of them really believes it. Um, <coughs> but the Bible is so clear on this. And, and I had to go back and do a lot of deconstruction and then kind of rereading because I'd never been taught this before, ever. Um, it was always this, the church needs to be a place where we welcome everybody. And I started coming back and, and, and re reading, the Bible, reading the Bible for myself. Yeah, anybody. The church, so are, we should embrace anybody. So my, I started coming back and I was like, says who? Right? And you go back and you read the Bible and you find out 
the church isn't as welcoming a place as people <laughs> make it out to be in in the Bible because they were constantly um, shielding innocent people from oppressors. Mm-hmm. That was the job and the duty of Christians to keep deceptive, masquerading, um, fake cowards away yeah. from innocent people. It was their job. It was their duty. People were obligated to do that. Not just leaders, everybody. Yeah. So yep. when churches have pedophiles who they know are in their ranks, what do you suggest that churches should be doing? Get rid of they them. Have... Because here's the thing is, here's what happens in like my communities. This is what happens today. The two who are still part of the, the, like the two of my perpetrators, they're still part of the Amish community. They are full members mm-hmm. of the church. Mm-hmm. They are not shunned. They are not nothing. Mm-hmm. They are fine, upstanding church members. It's crazy. And yeah. I've been shunned for 17 years. Yay. Yeah, I know. I know. I mean, like, Audrey, you, like, Audrey, you talked about what we do, and I, you know, I'm with you 100 um, percent because we can we can bemoan this all day long, and we can lament, we can, right. we can be angry, uh, but at the end of the day, the question is, what do we do about it? And you know, I think we start shining a really bright spotlight on these churches that that hide and harbor abusers, um, mm-hmm. and and we start forcing them to answer for themselves. We need to change it where victims. Um, stop having to answer for why they behave the way they behave um, and start start requiring churches that harbor and hide abusers to say, what are you guys doing? What are you thinking? What are you doing to protect the congregation? Does your congregation know that the, first off, do mm-hmm. they know that they're pedophiles? Well, we, we said that they had a sin in their life. No, 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 no. Does your church know, does every single living, breathing person within your church community know that this person is a pedophile and do they know how many victims they've had? And Um, and if they don't, they don't belong anywhere near that community. They don't belong anywhere near. Well, I mean, I don't think they belong there anyway, but, you know, you start that conversation. Yeah, go ahead. Um, Question. Do you think that the... um churches should allow pedophiles access to children? Never. No. No. And here's why. Um, I talk about this too in the book. I, I said it's it's bad enough to think about a child, to be depraved enough to think about a child in a sexual way, a prepubescent child. When you're like, man, I'd like to, you know, I have to be careful what I say because Facebook will probably censor it. But um, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> man, I'd like to get with, with that. She's five. This is a five-year-old kid. You know what I mean? It's bad enough to think that. It's it's if you actually get people who are who are uh, um, blaming victims and um, trying to whitewash this whole idea of child abuse. If you get them to uh, force them to think about it, think about actually step by step what this this would look like. You know, and get them to think about what it would what it would look like to abuse that child and to say, now I can see your, your response to that. Like you are visibly um, grossed out. You're sickened by it. These people didn't just think it. They did They followed through and they did it. Mm -hmm. 
so they should it not actually, have access. Because it, it's one thing, right? It's one thing to think about, to be depraved enough to think about sexualizing a child mm-hmm. and to masturbate, right? Um, it's it's bad enough. It's bad enough to do that, but they didn't do that. They they actually hunted that victim down. They, they manipulated. Uh, they manipulated the victim and the the victim's parents. They followed through, and all the things that they they thought about doing to that child, they did it. And they stood up front, and they lied about it, and they put this image on that they're this godly, holy person who loves God. They're just madly in love with God, and they they built this facade. And they maintained that facade and all the lies that go along with it. And when they were confronted with the abuse, they magnified those lies. They didn't repent. They didn't break down and say, my God, I need to pour my heart out. I need to confess every thought that I've had. I need to confess every victim that I have. I need to confess everything and self-remove myself from minor children for the rest of my life because I've proved that I cannot be in the presence of kids without victimizing them. That's, I've never seen that yep. done. Yep. I've I've yep. never seen that done. I've never thought I'd hear a pastor say that either. Um and and, well, and I think where you talked about go ahead. Go ahead. I think where you talked about testing versus grooming was really, really important. And yeah. I yes. I, I, I never felt like grooming really fit in, in yeah. the experiences it that we've had and, uh, and others have had. Um, and when you talked about testing, oh, it fits so well. And I, I look mm-hmm. back over the past and I, I see victim, or abuser after abuser testing. And I mm-hmm. it fit perfectly. Yeah. And congregations really need to understand that. And they need to understand what that looks like. Yeah. And and you do detail that in your book very well. And and I agree with the testing versus grooming, Audrey. That's actually where I was going. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to bring up the testing. <laughs> yeah, I'm, yeah. I mean, and, and not that grooming doesn't happen, but primarily that's not what happens. Primarily no. with your average abuser, what happens is is testing um, where um, they already know what the outcome is, right? So grooming is grooming is this idea. Um, for the listeners, grooming is this idea that <clears throat> they uh, they kind of groom a community into trusting them, yep. and they it's this slow process, and it could be months long or it could be years mm-hmm. long, but there's this slow manipulating and kind of pulling the whole community along into believing that they're good people. That's not what they do. They're trusted because they're a family member. There, there's this automatic trust. They don't have to. They don't have to convince people that they're trustworthy people. Or it's just they're, automatic trust because they're a police officer, because they're a pastor, because they're a family member. There's an automatic trust. They're a doctor. There's this automatic trust because of who they are. They don't have to convince people of that. They don't groom people into trusting them. They're just trusted people. Um, and then this idea of giving gifts, and you know, it was interesting. This was really eye opening for me. My dad was like, he's like this whole idea of of giving gifts, showering lavish gifts on victims and using that to groom them along so that, so that they'll trust us as an adult and then we can perp on them. He's like, that's total BS. He's like, that's not what they do. Right. And he's like, sure. I gave gifts, gifts to my victims. And my dad said, you know who else I gave gifts to? He's like, 
all of you. I gave gifts to my kids. I gave gifts to other people's kids. And he goes, you know who else does? I was like, no, who? Everybody. <laughs> and and it's interesting. Like when I talk, when I talk to churches, when I do trainings, I ask them, like, just list off the top of your head, list all the grooming behaviors that you've ever been taught that abusers exhibit. And and mm-hmm. I'll write them down, right? I'll write them down. And it's the handing out candy. It's the um, the play dates alone with the kids. It's the um, sneaking yeah. off alone and, you know, uh, isolating kids, breaking them off from the herd, isolating the kids on and on and on. And I say, okay, now, honestly, truthfully, how many of us do these things? Right. How many of us give gifts, whether it's to our own kids or our own kids and other kids? Um, how many of us, male or female, how many of us give gifts to them? How many of us have taken our own kid off to the bathroom? Um, right. I was at a bowling alley last night. My seven-year-old son said, I need to go pee. Guess who took him to the bathroom? And it was just the two of us in there. I took him because I'm not going to let him be alone in a bathroom. In the bathroom, right? Right. I isolated my kid in a bathroom. So if people are looking at these grooming behaviors, they're going to be like, oh my goodness, like, this could be an abuser. And, I, and I'm not really sure there's this amb- ambiguity around it. And that's exactly what abusers want. Yes. That you're, you're because they one, can point the finger and be like, well, Mary, you're like grandma I, Smith, grandma Smith over here just took a kid to the bathroom. She isolated a kid. She's grooming them according to you, Mary. Well, or, right? or, or you could even look at this, like, I'm a seamstress because I do still sew. So mm-hmm. I, I made a friend's kids some shirts. Yeah. And and that could be considered grooming. Yeah. Yeah. But it's really not grooming. Like, That's I'm, right. That's I'm right. not, no. Yeah. So so I came back and I was like, okay, testing um, what my dad does and what, what your average abuser does. Um is they start with, with these benign tests, much like a magician, right? And I gave that example. Magicians don't, they can go into the audience and they can they can ask a couple questions. And next thing, 60 seconds later, somebody's up on stage with them. They have a volunteer. They tested a group of people in the audience and they chose the one who was the best fit to be up on stage with them. Well, how did they do that so quickly? Did they groom that person to come up on stage and... Did they convince them that they're trustworthy and did they, you know, kind of string them along? No, they tested them. They did a, a, a series of super quick, highly uh-huh. effective testing uh-huh. techniques to find out, okay, who's going to come up on stage and just go along with everything that I do versus the person who's going to be like, you know, I asked them to do something and they pause and they look at me and they're really analyzing and thinking, uh-huh. should I really do this? Like they picked the right person by doing this rapid series of testing. And they already knew what the goal was, right? They knew what the trick is that they're gonna perform on stage. Um, Just like abusers know, they know what the end goal is. All they have to do is find out which person is gonna offer the least path of resistance. And they do that through testing. Yep. And they do it right in front of parents. Um, 100% and on purpose, they do it in front of parents and adults. And they test the adults too. Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. Um, so we are kind of like over our time. Do yeah. y'all have any final words to say? 
I'd love to hear real quick, I think for our listeners as well, I think it would be beneficial if Jimmy, you would talk just briefly about what you do as far as training um, and any resources that you recommend. Yeah. Um, so my training, I specialize in abuse in plain sight um, and deception techniques, uh, understanding deception techniques. And the reason I focus on abuse in plain sight is because one, it's far more common than than what research shows. Research says that about 20% of abusers will at some point abuse victims in front of other people. Uh, I think that number is closer to 100% just based on um, the amount of, of victims who I've spoken with. Um, that doesn't mean that 100% of the time abusers are abusing in front of other people. Certainly right. they abuse in isolation. 100% they, you know, they definitely abuse in isolation. But they do a lot of these testing techniques, both benign and um, full-on abuse, in front of adults. So my thing is, um, we really needed. I really wanted to understand the science behind that. How do we? How do we not see that? What is it about our brains and how we're wired? And what are the techniques that abusers are using to keep us blind to that? Because it's all intentional. It's a hundred percent intentional on the part of the abuser, mm-hmm. um, for a whole host of reasons that I won't go into now, but. What I wanted to do is I, you know, I, I wanted to understand that so that we can see it, so that we can recognize it, and so that we can um, intercept these patterns before there's full-on molestation. Um, mm-hmm. and, um, and the reason is the abuse that happens in isolation, unless there's a video camera in that room, physically, none of us will ever, ever see that abuse. We have zero, a 0% chance of ever seeing that abuse unless we walk into a room and happen to see that abuse that's happening in isolation, which then it's not in isolation anymore. Right. So, um, for me, this, this abuse that happens in front of us gives us something tangible because if we know it's happening, all we have to do is understand something about the techniques that they use. And it would be the equivalent of taking a room full of people and bringing them up on stage side by side with a magician. And instead of being in the audience, looking up at the stage at the magician being like, wow, how did you do that? They're up on stage beside a magician, seeing step-by-step what it looks like from the magician's perspective as he's fooling the people in the audience. So it's just shifting the perspective and then putting those people back in the crowd. And then what have you done to the magic? you've stripped it away. There is no magic because the people in the audience are like, Oh, I know what he's doing. Yeah. Sawing a person in half. I know yep. how that's done. Yeah. Right. So <laughs> it allows you to, to be able to recognize and see these deception techniques instantly. Yep. And it's highly effective. Which is amazing because people who know better will do better. I, yeah. I actually have another question. Um, do you have any resources for betrayed family members? At this point, um, we don't. Um, my mom has a blog, uh, findingahealingplace.com, and that's probably the, the, the best resource that's out there because she writes a lot from the perspective of a wife of an abuser um, and just kind of poured both her feelings out and uh, she's really thinking through and processing what happened and how, how she missed all of this as the wife of an abuser and even the aftermath of that. 
you know, having, uh, having daughters who were abused under her roof and, you know, and she didn't know she was unaware. Um, so her website, again, it's findingahealingplace.com. Um, but as far as actual resources that are really focused for family members of abusers, I'm unaware of any right now. Um, but I know, Audrey, you said that that's a passion of yours. Um, it's a passion of mine, too. And, you know, if that means partnering up and, and seeing how we can develop something, I, I'm all for it. And I feel like there's a distinctive lack of resources for family members who, who, who were not necessarily physically abused or sexually assaulted. There's, there's a distinctive lack of resources for them. Yeah. And, and I think it, it needs to happen. We need to have resources for them. Yeah. I mean, we have a lot of, um, there are a lot of resources are, that, that are coming out in the past in the past ten years since I started doing right. it um, for survivors. There there are a lot of tons mm-hmm. of support groups, mm-hmm. lots of advocates who are survivor advocates. Um, they're the people who should be reaching out to other survivors because they lived it. You know, like yes. I'm not really in a position to start a survivor support group because I'm because I'm not one. Like I hear stories, and, you know, I I I know secondhand what it's like. Um, to experience abuse, but I'll never, I'll never fully know what that's like to experience abuse. I, I just can't, that's not, that's not, I would not be the right person to do that. Right. So we have lots of resources for survivors, but we need tons more research, uh, um, resources for churches, Mm -hmm. um, to train them, to equip them. Mm -hmm. Those who have ears are going to hear and those who don't won't, um, but it's true. you know, I'm working on resources for that. I already have, I, I have my blog. I have um, now the book that came out. Um, I'm planning several follow-up books uh, that will be more like training manuals um, for people to oh, be able to walk wonderful. through the aftermath of abuse. Yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. That is amazing and wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing all of this. Jimmy's yeah, book, absolutely. once again, is called The Devil Inside. It's available on Amazon. You can buy it in Kindle format if you like to read on Kindle. Yeah. I personally was really impressed when I read this book and I reached out to Jimmy and Jimmy did us the great honor of coming and speaking with us. And I appreciate it greatly. Thank you so much. Thank you, Audrey, for helping. I hope you all have a great day. Thank you, Jimmy. Absolutely.